0: All right, what's going on guys? So today I'm sitting down with Dr. Aaron Horschig and we're going to be talking about the role of corrective exercises and mobility and strength training. So first off, I want to say thanks so much, uh, Aaron, for joining us. I'm really, really excited to, uh, to do this podcast with you because we, we kind of rescheduled the one time and uh, honestly, I've just been looking forward to, to hearing what you have to say about some of the things we're going to be discussing.
1: Yeah, thank you so much for having me on. I really appreciate it. Excited for the conversation today.
0: Yeah, so would you mind giving yourself a little bit of an interview, or not interview, a little bit of uh, an introduction to some of the people who maybe aren't familiar with you and Squat University?
1: Yeah, so basically, I am a strength and conditioning nerd, weightlifting nerd, that decided to become a physical therapist. Um, I started competing in the sport of Olympic weightlifting back in 2005, before it uh, blew up in the United States due to CrossFit, I guess I'll say. Still very a niche sport back then, and uh, competed for over 11 years until I decided to really st- take a step back from competing to start making a ton of content, which is squat university. So I got my doctorate degree from the university of Missouri or Mizzou, um, in 2012, and have been, uh, treating patients anywhere from, you know, your eight-year-old soccer player to your 80-year-old grandma who just wants to get in shape and, and, you know, decrease her aches and pains, um, ever since. And then really in the last couple of years, I've been able to find that niche of the strength athlete. So weightlifters, powerlifters, crossfitters, strongmen, really that's, that's my area of, of love and expertise in rehabbing. So being able to take someone who's having some aches and pains, problems with technique that they're not being able to fix and help them really get out of pain and find their true performance potential because they, it all starts with, you know, finding that off optimal ground of movement first. Um, and that's really where squat university sort of was spurred out of. So I started squat university in 2015 as sort of my outlet to the world to help educate others in the ways in which I wish I had someone to guide me back when I was a young weightlifter. You know, I, just like I told you, I competed for over 11 years and in doing so I sustained a number of different injuries, just like most competitive athletes. You know, you rarely go through an entire year where something's not bugging you. You know, it's rarely a a huge injury, like a torn ACL that hampers the strength athlete, whether you're a weightlifter, powerlifter, strongman, but it's these small nagging injuries. You know, my right elbow is hurting on a, on a press or my, my left knee's killing me every single time I'm doing a deep squat over 80%, something like that. And just over my time of both having that time under the barbell, but then also treating patients who are having those similar issues at both an intermediate, but then also a very elite level, I've been able to to really find a number of different things that I found to be very helpful. And my goal is really to talk to the athlete from that perspective. I think too often nowadays, we find a lot of people who are extremely smart, that ivory tower smart, but they speak down to people and they use a lot of terms in ways in which they speak and a lot of technical research jargon that it doesn't allow the common everyday lifter and coach to really understand and be empowered with the the knowledge that they can actually take something and do something with. So what I've decided to really do with Squawai University is, is take all that understanding, all that, the research, the clinical experience over years of treating hundreds and hundreds of athletes, but boil it down in a way in which I can speak to you and explain it to you to where you're like, I get that, that makes sense. And I can take that and apply it and instantly I can see some big changes. And when you get out of pain and fix those small common problems, it just makes training a lot much more enjoyable. And especially when you get to see those records start to fall again because you're able to to be pain-free for longer, that's what it's all about. So that's what I try to do with Squat University. That was 2015 when I started, been going strong since then, but I try to put out as much free content Every single day across every single social media platform, whether that's Instagram, YouTube, Facebook, blog, podcast, or even TikTok recently. You won't see me doing any dances, but you'll still see some, some just helpful tips to, to help athletes move better in the gym and in life, decrease their aches and pains, and reach their true athletic potential.
0: That's wild. I, I actually didn't know that you had only started in 2015 because <laughs> you have a massive following. I think you're at like 1.7 million or something just on Instagram. Which is bananas.
1: So yeah, I mean it's crazy to see, but I I, I'm truly grateful every single day. I feel very blessed to see where the where the following has grown to. Um and I I think it just comes down to I try to give away all my content for free. I'm trying to make a positive impact in the world. I'm not trying to hold anything back. If you really want to learn more about something, I've got, you know, longer videos on YouTube or more in-depth explanations on blog with all the research cited. Um, but I'm just trying to, to help as many people as possible. I think when you try to put good into the world, uh, good things come back and that's how, uh, things grow like that.
0: Basically just to kind of frame the, the conversation that we're going to have, we're, we're, primarily focusing on strength athletes. So let's, I guess, create an operational definition of powerlifters, weightlifters, strongmen, and we can maybe even include CrossFit athletes, but typically just kind of barbell sport or implement athletes. Um, Versus like football or sprinters or something like that to kind of like whittle down the conversation a little bit. So what sort of screens do you use to determine mobility requirements for a lifter? Or what, what have you noticed that's been fairly effective just from an anecdotal standpoint? Like these are the typical big
1: picture things that we need to focus on first. So it's all about sort of what are the requirements in competition. Obviously, weightlifting is going to be on one end of the spectrum that's a little bit different than powerlifting for a couple of different reasons. While we're both using the squat, a weightlifter for uh, the needs of being as efficient as possible in the clean and jerk and snatch needs to be able to have extreme mobility leverages. They need to be able to literally sit their heels on their butt. And what happens is that if you don't have those extreme end ranges and the capability To get into those positions comfortably, you see compensation and movement. So if you see an athlete while you're doing a screen, I like, I mean, I often just start with the basic squat, maybe an overhead squat for a weightlifter, but I also look at just a back squat and a front squat, and I'll have them take their shoes off and just squat down as deep as possible. And the reason I take their shoes off is because the feet set the foundation for everything. And you can often, um, I guess, disguise a lot of problems by wearing shoes all the time. So while you may compete in shoes, I screen without them. And I want to be able to make the invisible visible. And that often a lot of problems come undone and become more visible when you screen with the shoes off. But nonetheless, whenever I'm looking at screening in the squat, I'm looking to see them perform a full depth squat. And to see what happens with their leverages and what different happens with their uh, with their different angles that they can make and how comfortable they are. For an Olympic weightlifter, a couple of things. I want to see their foot remain in a slight arched position. Sometimes the arch will flatten out a little bit. I'm looking for knees in line with the toes. I'm looking for the hip crease to literally drop as low as possible. I want them to sit their butt on their heels. And I want their trunk to remain upright. I don't want to see any backgrounding. Now, obviously for a power lifter, there's less need in competition for a full depth squat. You don't get any more bonus points by squatting ass to grass. You get to squat to hip crease below the top of the knee. Now, I would like to see a little bit more capability below that. But again, I don't want necessarily with every power lifter ass to grass capability with a back squat because here's the deal. powerlifting requires what we would call tuned mobility. This is a, a different uh, um, wording, I guess, or, or description that I picked up from Dr. Stuart McGill, who's the foremost authority on backs and spine uh, biomechanics in the world. And he used the word tuned mobility. Here's the reason. If you look at Blaine Sumner, he's a, a person I've worked with before. Blaine, when he takes that barbell, even just an open barbell, and he's squatting down deep, he doesn't get ass to grass. But he doesn't need astrograss because what happens is that if he has that full capability, he loses a little bit of stiffness. And to a point for a powerlifter, the goal is to have a certain amount of stiffness that allows your body to hoist these massive amounts of weight and not be crushed by them. So the weightlifter, on one hand, needs an extreme amount of mobility and stability so that they can get into these amazing positions and still stay upright. Whereas the weightlift or the powerlifter needs tuned mobility enough to get into enough positions to have a passing squat, but they don't need a crazy amount because then they just have a lot more range of motion that they have to stabilize and control. So, to a point, a little bit of stiffness for a powerlifter allows them the ability to hoist even more weights than the weightlifter. Now, I would say on the extreme end of the spectrum, on the other side, would be like someone who does yoga. You don't see someone who, uh, a yogi, someone who's been a a master of that craft uh, squatting 800 pounds. It's because their body has developed in a way that allows them extreme mobility and suppleness, but not necessarily the stiffness to hoist massive weight. So your body will adapt to basically the end goal and how you train it. Um, So as far as screening goes, the first thing I'm looking at is just your basic squat, shoes off. In seeing what happens. Do your toes slide out as you squat down? Do your feet collapse over? Do the knees cave in? Well, all of a sudden we've seen movement problems appear. Then we just have to dive deeper and find out sort of piece apart. Well, why did it occur? We look at the foot, the ankle, the knee, the hip, everything up. So we can sort of break it down in the joint by joint process. And if you wanted to go into that right now, we can. Um, the joint by joint process for the listeners out there is not something I've invented on my own, but is something that I've taken from uh, physical therapist and strength and conditioning coach uh, Gray Cook, who wrote the book Movement, developed the FMS screen, and Mike Boyle. Now, while some people, uh, especially on Twitter nowadays, you can really see there's a big you know uh, disagreements with a lot of different coaches over maybe the FMS or Mike Boyle and his uh, appreciation for the full depth bilateral squat. He's always about unilateral training. The thing we can take away is that there's there's bits and pieces from every coach that we like, but not all that we have to fully take as gospel every time. And the joint by joint approach is such a great tool that they gave to the world. Basically, it's a way of looking at the body and assessing specific qualities to each joint or joint complex based on what they need in order for optimal movement to occur. So if we look at the foot, sort of goes foot all the way up. The foot complex is one of the most mobile complexes in the body as there are over 27 bones, number of ligaments, uh, tendons that run through that area. It's capable of being very mobile. But instantaneously, when you are squatting, when you catch a clean, you want that foot to be very stable and stiff to support the rest of the body. So we'd say the foot needs to be stable. The ankle, on the other hand, needs to be fairly mobile. You can't get an Astrograss squat if you don't have ankle mobility. And more ankle mobility means more knee over toe translation, which means your chest can remain more upright in the squat. So the ankle requires mobility, but is often prone to stiffness. So you can see sort of it, the dichotomy between what it needs and what pitfalls we often find. The knee is obviously something that requires a good amount of stability. We want that knee to be directly in line with the body for optimal technique. Now we all know those power lifters or weightlifters that hit a squat and their knees just wobble around like crazy or cave in. Obviously that's a lack of stability. That's the pitfall the knees fall into. And then so on and so forth all the way up the rest of the body. We have mobile joints moving on top of stable platforms. Now, the only funny joint is the hip that sort of requires both mobility and stability, and we can really dive into that later if you want. But let's take, for instance, I look at a squat. Let's say I'm dealing with a weightlifter, and I take their shoes off, I have them squat to full depth, and as they go down, their toes spin out like crazy. Well, first off, I can tell that they have some sort of movement problem that maybe they didn't see before, Whenever they have their weightlifting shoes on, they put their weightlifting shoes on, they squat down, everything stays nice and firm. Well, what's causing those toes to spin out? Well, I see the problem. I write it down. Now I sort of take that joint by joint approach and maybe I go to the ankles and I can use something simple like a five inch wall test. It's just a closed chain dorsiflexion, basically ankle mobility test. And I'm looking for how far the knee goes over the toe. Now, five inches, why five inches? It's a pretty common uh, mark for most people that's roughly, brings out roughly 30 to 35 degrees of closed chain dorsiflexion, meaning it's a good amount of ankle mobility that most people should come close to. Now, what we're looking for is not necessarily can you hit the wall every time, but do you have symmetry? So whenever we're looking at problems in the body, because when you do a screening, You can uncover a lot of shit sometimes. And sometimes it's tough as a coach to go, well, what do I tackle first? There's a lot of stuff I just uncovered. First and foremost, we tackle asymmetries. Asymmetries before bilateral stiffness. Because asymmetries cause an athlete to move in a wobbly-like manner. They cause you to move off axis. Now, for a baseball player, a good amount of asymmetry is normal. I may have a crap ton of external rotation on my throwing side and a little bit on my non-throwing side. For a golfer, I may have a lot of internal rotation on one hip and a minimal amount on the other hip. It's a common adaptation that we see to the sport. But in a strength sport where an athlete is doing a squat, a deadlift, a clean, a snatch, those are bilateral movements. And if we bring a lot of asymmetry into a bilateral loaded, heavy loaded movement, We're just asking the body to eventually move in this off-axis manner, that can increase the risk for long-term injury and decrease the efficiency of the movement as a whole. So I may use like a five-inch wall test and see what do we find. We could find out that the athlete maybe misses and comes up real short. They've just got a big ankle mobility issue, and they didn't know it because they're always wearing weightlifting shoes. That's a big thing with weightlifters. They love to wear those weightlifting shoes. Well, if you're never squatting, or doing anything outside of your weightlifting shoes, you may completely miss the point that you've got a big ankle mobility problem and you've just been covering it up with weightlifting shoes. I'm not saying don't wear weightlifting shoes because they allow weightlifters to get into even better positions. That's why weightlifting shoes were invented in the fifties. But we always want to be mindful of whether or not we're covering up problems that can lead to bigger issues down the road. So we want to be able to get out in front of any of these problems and One of my biggest uh, things that I love doing now is just barefoot squatting a lot because I think it really exposes and allows you to solidify your quality of movement. You own the movement. Then when you put your weightlifting shoes on, you just have even better motion. So could find a mobility issue. You could have an asymmetry side to side. Um, And from there, there's really so many different screens that you can do um, that we can get into. But the first and foremost thing is you use just a basic squat, whether that's a back squat, whether that's an overhead squat for a weightlifter, but a basic squat with shoes off can tell you a lot. Sort of the, one of those, uh, what's the, uh, the Yogi Berra quote where he said, I can see a lot just from watching. And it, I mean, it's funny to hear, but it's so true. And it really getting out of those shoes can expose a lot of things.
0: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And actually it's funny because I wear weightlifting shoes and, um, I noticed that – so during the lockdown, I didn't have access to a a gym at all. So I was doing like pistol squats, one-arm push-ups, just things that I absolutely hate. (laughs) But one thing that came out of it actually was when I came back to squatting, um, my ankle mobility had improved so much just because – I mean, I'm not going to put on weightlifting shoes to do a bodyweight workout. That was just ridiculous. So uh, I noticed that really improved. And one of the things that that actually prompted me to do was – I still squat in weightlifting shoes, but then if I'm doing leg press, Bulgarian split squats, something like that, I'll switch to my deadlifting shoes, which gives me a little bit more ability to kind of press into the, the range of my ankles. And I found that that actually has helped quite a bit and just allowing me to get a little bit further in terms of like knee travel over the toes, because I have, I have you know pretty big legs And that's definitely kind of like where my power is uh, as far as like I'm squatting. Um, I'm not, not very much a hip dominant squatter by any means. And so that's actually helped quite a bit from a positional standpoint. So it's interesting that you kind of brought that up as well. You know, so assuming now we've, we've identified some of the issues that a lifter may have Mm -hmm. and when you're faced with those, what is your strategy for like the corrective process? Like, are you kind of a top down kind of guy? Are you bottom up? How do you decide where that is?
1: That's a good question. I, I really think it sort of depends on the athlete. I don't really get pigeonholed into one specific way of, of fixing things. Um, I sort of test and retest and sort of see what works for the athlete. You know, sometimes it's top down, sometimes it's bottom up. Um, I think the big thing is first and foremost, I like to do the entire screen. I want to sort of see, um, what do we find? And then from there we test we retest and we see if we're able to make changes and what those look like. So for example, if I see an athlete with a hip shift, it's a common problem. I will um, screen their entire body. And based on what I find, let's say I find an issue in, um, in hip mobility where maybe one side they're, hit, they're shifting to their left. Well, I do something called the Faber test and I find the left hip, all of a sudden it's falling. It's not falling out nearly to the side. Um, I may not even look at the ankles yet. I may for some athletes, I may not, but if I look at the hips and I find that there's a problem there, I'm going to attack that and I want to see, does it make a change? So if I find a problem and then I do a test or uh, do that's my test. Now I do a, a simple exercise, like an assisted hip airplane or a kettlebell weight shift, something like that. And I come back, I retest. Did I make a, did I make a change? Yes or no. What did that do to my movement? I instantly get them back under the barbell and see if we're able to make a change. If not, then I know it's something else and I need to go elsewhere. So I think it's one of those things that depending on your feel for the athlete and what you see and maybe how you know of them in the past, you could go you know, bottoms up. I, I could have looked instantly at their ankles and seen, okay, well, it was an ankle mobility issue on the right side versus the left side. It could have been a tibial rotation issue. Um, you sort of get a feel, uh, the longer you've been in the game and you know, the athlete or you've seen their movement patterns that you know where to go to next. Uh, but again, it's always sort of this art versus science where, um, we have these tests, we know what they do, we know how they work. And then it's sort of the art of, of every single athlete, sort of picking and choosing different tests and measures and, and always checking your, checking your, your work and seeing how it makes a change, you know? I think that's the biggest thing that I got from Kelly Starrett, who's you know the founder of Mobility Wad, now the Ready State, and wrote the book Becoming a Supple Leopard, was he was always saying, you know, I'm not a researcher, but I am a scientist. And my scientific principle is the test and retest method. And it's very simple. You know, if you do a screen, you see a, a problem in someone's movement pattern, you go to a specific test. All right, let's do the five-inch wall test. Do we see a a problem? Yes or no? Yes? Okay, let's do my intervention. Does that change the problem movement? No? Okay, that was just a weak link that was not part of the problem. Let's go elsewhere and let's continue sort of diving. Uh, I always use the analogy with with patients and depending on the movement problem, sometimes they can be very in-depth, especially if they've been going on for a while because what happens is that when you start moving, poorly with a problem, and then you do so for a long time, all of a sudden the area that started the problem can then lead to multiple other problems. So for example, I could have an athlete that hip shifted due to a problem in left hip mobility. The Faber test really could have found it, solved the problem. But this athlete just kept on lifting through it, right? They gutted it out. They got a meet in eight weeks. They can't stop right now. They don't want to go see a physical therapist. They're just going to tell them to stop training. So they keep on pushing. Now, all of a sudden, they're starting to ache a little bit, right? But they keep on moving the big weight. Well, what happens is that because the body is moving in that off-axis manner, sometimes different other parts of the body start stiffening up in reaction to it. So you start having these compensations elsewhere in the body. All of a sudden, you may get a little bit of stiffness in the opposite side ankle to sort of make up for the issue and make sure that we're not tilting too much. You know, things like that can happen to where – when I'm doing my screening, I want to make sure I'm uncovering all the issues. Yes, I'm going to try to find the one that started it, but it's hard to say sometimes whether or not this was the specific thing that started in the first place. So it's which came first, chicken or the egg? I don't care. I'm going to find both and work on both kind of thing.
0: Yeah, so I, uh, I'm, I'm glad you brought up the test retesting because a lot of the times we see this when people are you know doing mobility and they're doing foam rollers and banded distraction and things like that for about 45 minutes and by the time they're actually ready to work out most of the you know any any of the changes that they've potentially created have kind of dissipated by that point and so um yeah I definitely think it's important to kind of have something to kind of be bouncing back and forth with to see hey does this actually work is it improving my situation or not and um did, did you just kind of wanted to touch on that and on kind of some of the transient effects of um, some of the typical things that people use to warm up and do prep work? And then also maybe just make some recommendations on like, you know, here are some some good ideas to help kind of prime your system that could lead to more chronic changes in whether it's your nervous system, tissue structure, whatnot.
1: Definitely. So the, the first thing we got to talk about is the idea of sort of the chronic overanalyzer, the person that comes in and does like 45 minutes worth of foam rolling and mobility work before they ever start touching a barbell. Because I feel like that's one of the things that people most misconstrued about the message that I'm trying to deliver. And, um, I'll share a video maybe of someone that was dealing with a, a knee issue and I taught them, you know, abandoned joint mobilization because they had limited mobility. And then, you know, they see another video and this person had this problem and I showed them this mobility drill. And then they're they're commenting, they're like, Man, if I did everything squat, you would say it would take an hour for me to warm up. And that's far from the truth. If you actually read the stuff I'm talking about in voice over, you know, with videos, I'm all about taking sort of that minimalism approach to finding. the the things that we need to do that's going to give us the most ROI, the most return on investment so we can get into our workout. Enough mobility and stability work that helps us maximize our movement control, our movement uh, abilities, and maximize our performance. And if we left it out, it would hinder our movement control, our movement capabilities, and our performance. So here's an analogy that works for a lot of people. If you were to go to a fancy restaurant, And I'm not a fancy restaurant guy, but I know about, if you go to a fancy restaurant, you've got usually your pick of a couple different things. You've got uh, appetizers, entrees, and desserts, right? Well, it would be weird if you would go and be like, I want everything, right? Unless you're eating with like Thor or someone like that, that just can, you know, take down 10,000 calories in a meal. Most people are going to choose an appetizer. You choose an entree, you choose a dessert. Well, the same sort of thing goes for warming up and you want to be able to pick and choose a few different mobility drills, stability, what you need for your body that's going to help you with the end goal of moving better, more efficiently, improve your stability so that it takes over into effect for improved performance. That's what it's all about. Moving better, performing better. If you're going to the gym and you're foam rolling for more than like even 10 minutes, that's too much. If you're having to do like 30 minutes of mobility work before you even pick up a barbell, you're probably neglecting movement throughout your entire day and you're trying to make up for it all at one time. If you're moving often and well throughout your day, you won't need that much mobility work when you get to the gym. And sometimes you don't even need mobility work. Some people are very hypermobile and they just need a little priming before they get under the barbell but it's all about what you need. And that's where the test retest method comes in. So for example, let's take for instance, a squat. You get to the gym, let's say it's squat day. The thing I don't want people to do is just walk into the gym, do a couple leg swings, grab the barbell and just start squatting. Because what that's doing is not acclimating our body to the most uh, optimal way of priming for performance. Just grabbing the barbell and doing some squats isn't enough to really prime for 100% our best possible outcomes. Now, get to there, the gym, maybe do a few just like body weight squats, sit down in the bottom, see what feels stiff, what feels tight. Everyone's got their own individual issues to work on. Some people need to hit a little bit of ankle mobility work. So you do your little bit, test free test, see where you're at. Maybe you don't need it that day because you've been moving well. Sometimes it's just a little course I like doing personally the McGill Big Three, it's what Blaine Sumner do does. I mean, the dude squats over a thousand pounds on the regular, and he warms up every single time he squats with the McGill Big Three and a goblet squat that I showed him. You know, and then uh, we do a few things that our body needs, and then you get under the bar, you knock out a couple reps, and then you get going. Your wor- warm up should last no more than ten to fifteen minutes max. If you're warming up for much longer to get under the bar you're probably doing something or ignoring something throughout your day that you're trying to make up for in that warm-up. So you may be just sitting all day at your desk and you never get up and walk around or sit in a deep squat or do anything throughout the day. Well, your body's going to become stiff and adapt to that position so that, yeah, when you do get to the gym, you're going to feel like you need that much foam rolling or uh, you know any type of mobility work to even feel like you're moving well. So if you don't ignore it throughout the day, you're going to feel better. Now, let's talk about some of the other questions people have. First being foam rolling. Some people are like, excuse me, some people will say foam rolling is the dumbest thing ever. It doesn't do anything. Like there's no research behind it. Why would you ever foam roll? Well, I think that's also a very short-sighted approach because yes, there's a lot of research that shows that foam rolling works. Now, in saying that, What does foam rolling actually do? Does it actually, you know, work out scar tissue? No. Does it actually make long-term improvements? No. But what does research show? And there's many systematic reviews, meaning research articles that review research articles that show that soft tissue work like foam rolling for a minute to two minutes on a certain area improves the short-term flexibility of that specific muscle. So for example, if you have very stiff calf muscles, if you foam roll them for about a minute to two minutes, you will for a short time afterwards, and it could be two minutes, it could be a half an hour, everyone's a little bit different, will have a little bit more improvement in calf flexibility. Now, if someone's squatting, you need a sufficient amount of calf flexibility in order to get down. In order to allow your knee to translate over your toe, you need calf flexibility. So for some people, the foam roller can be a great tool in the toolbox to improve short-term mobility for the ankle to allow them to get into even better positions. Now, the way I like to go about foam rolling is to think again, it's a tool in the toolbox. For some people, let's say you just had a day where you were just on your feet constantly. You were just, you know, you had to be standing, you were, you know, you got to New York City, you're walking around you walked for two miles, three or four miles that day and you got to the gym and your calves are just smoked. Well, guess what? If you do a minute, two minutes of foam rolling, you're going to feel like you're loosened up a little bit more. You're going to squat a little bit better. You're going to have, you know, improved movement quality. So for that person at that time, that's a good tool. Now, the thing I always like to say in saying that is that if you have to foam roll the same area every single day, Before you get under the bar, you probably aren't cluing yourself to the fact that you need something else. So if you have to foam roll your calves every single time that you squat, you're probably not also thinking, well, what else am I doing throughout my day? Oh, I'm standing all day long and I'm never sitting in a deep squat or I'm sitting all day long and I'm never loading my body in that deep position. So I'm never using my body as it was designed. Let's say you have to foam roll your lats every single day. Well, why do you have to foam roll your lats? It's not saying foam rolling the lats is a bad thing. For you at that time, it may be helpful. But if you have to chronically use it, what are you doing throughout your day? Are you stuck in an internally rotated slouch shoulder position? Your lats are always on, on, you know, in a shortened position, not actually moving your body, opening yourself up and actually using your lats to the full ability until you're actually in the gym. So things like that can be a clue to where we use the foam roller to create short-term adaptation when we need to, understanding that the changes are probably more neurological as far as creating a short-term adaptation and improved flexibility, and its chronic use probably needs to be questioned as far as what else could I be doing just to be that much more optimal. I'm not saying Foam rolling your calves is a bad thing. I think it can be a good thing for some people. But if you have to foam roll your calves every single day, you could be thinking, well, what else could I do to maybe to where I don't have to foam roll? Maybe if I sat in a deep squat a couple of times throughout the day and just sort of stretch my calves out, when I got to the gym, I don't feel like I have to do that. My calves don't feel stiff. I can just sit down in a deep squat a little bit easier. Well, now you just bought yourself two more minutes of training time because you don't have to use that time to warm up those calf muscles. So those are the big things that I always try to tell people is understanding the tool, what it's for, and then also the long-term adaptation to where you can work yourself out of having to use that tool. Just like the, the banded joint mobilization. That's another one. People will always write on, you know, different comments. Oh, banded joint mobilizations have no research behind them. Well, do one. Take someone who has a hip impingement. Do a banded joint mobilization on them correctly, and all of a sudden, directly after, they don't have that hip impingement. They don't have that pinching pain. They can sit down in a deep squat. You just changed that environment to allow them to move a little bit better. Now, is that the only thing I'm doing? It shouldn't be, because if so, and I just had a patient yesterday come to me. He goes, "Man, I feel like those banded joint mobilizations and this other kettlebell weight shift. I love those stretch, and I feel so open in my hips afterwards." But then like, I feel like the next day I have to do them again and I have to do them again. And I asked him, I said, how often are you sitting in a deep squat throughout your day? Or how often are you maybe doing like a single leg squat coordination, uh, you know, muscle, uh, strengthening and timing. He goes, oh, I don't do any of that. And I said, well, there's your cue right there. So you're doing a great job of improving mobility with these different drills, but you're not then using your body so that these different drills can stick around for a little bit longer. Now, there are going to be some instances where banded joint mobilization may be something that has to just be a staple part of your warm up. I had a guy one time who had a uh, pretty severe ankle fracture um, from years ago. He had ankle surgery where they put in a couple plates into the ankle and he just had stiff, stiff, stiff ankles. And to a point, there was only going to be so much that we could actually get out of him mobility wise. When he would do his banded joint mobilization, he got maybe about an inch more of dorsiflexion, so knee over toe translation. But it really didn't get that much better afterwards. He wasn't gonna pass the five inch test that I show sometimes. So, what we did was, you know, the banded joint mobilization was a staple part of his warm up every single time. And then he would do different things throughout the day to try to maintain that uh, improvement. But for him, that's a two minute, one minute long mobility drill. That's extremely helpful. So, again, it all comes down to the individual. Picking and choosing mobility drills and stability drills that are purposeful for your body with the end goal of improved um, improved motion, improved movement capabilities, and improved performance. And if you don't need it, you don't need it. It's all about choosing what your body needs. And your warm-up probably wouldn't look exactly like your best friends. And your warm-up now probably won't look like your warm-up in five years from now because you may be dealing with different things. But it's all about... Each specific thing should lead you to better performance. And if it doesn't, it's a waste of your time. So there's sort of the the opposite ends of the spectrum. Just like with mobility, we talked about how the power lifter needs tuned mobility because they need a good amount of stiffness to be able to hold, you know, a thousand pounds on their back. Whereas the yogi needs a lot of mobility, but doesn't need much stiffness because, you know, specific to their movement demands. Same sort of thing for, uh, the up. And the different exercises we choose. We sort of see these two opposite ends on the spectrum. You get this one person that comes in the gym and everyone knows that person that literally is foam rolling for 10, 15 minutes. And then they go do this mo- other mobility work and you don't see them pick up a barbell for like 45 minutes. And then you get the other guy in the end of the spectrum that walks in the gym, throws his shoes on and grabs a barbell. So I think it's, it's all about finding that happy medium of what is best and most optimal. For everyone, it's going to look a little different but a few minutes of five, five to 10 max of purposeful work, I think is extremely important for every single athlete, no matter your skill and your age. And uh, I guess years in the gym.
0: Yeah. Honestly, I completely agree with that. I find that a lot of the times it's so funny because it's in the name, but a lot of the times people don't actually get physically warm. They just go through, they do their mobility drills and it's like, Okay, you, you're foam rolling. You're doing all this stuff, so your hips feel better, and you can get into a squat. That's great, but you're not actually getting your muscles primed. You're not actually mm-hmm. doing things that are going to be relevant to the motor pattern you're going to be executing on that day. And it's so funny because I was guilty of that for so many years. And then once I started treating it a little bit more like a circuit, like if if you look at the the prep work that I give athletes, it looks like a workout, right? Mm-hmm. It looks like a little mini circuit. It's about five minutes, seven minutes long, just kind of mm-hmm. like you were saying, right? And it's like kind of based on what they need. I'll get them to do like bottom up kettlebell presses with maybe some like push pushups plus or something like that. Perfect. And then some other things like that, where it's like on a bench day and it's like, by the end of it, they're like, Oh my God, my shoulders <laughs> feel great. Like I'm getting them to do some dumbbell pullovers. Like you are talking about lat tight lats, yeah. Right. And then it's like, they get to it, they're sweating, they're breathing heavy. And they're like, man, my shoulders feel great. I feel like my scapular really like tight to my back. And I feel my back engaging when I'm benching, like it's so much better. and da, da, da. And it's like, well, yeah, because you're doing, like you said, you know, and I think that's a key word is purposeful work, yes. you know, and one of the things that I just kind of wanted to highlight that I'm glad you brought up is sometimes people really get bent out of shape when you talk about form rolling or, or, you know, a- anything along those lines, static stretching, dynamic stretching, whatever and a lot of the times it's focused on like the mechanism. They're like, ah, research has shown that the mechanism that we previously thought was the case or the, you know, isn't and it's more neurological. It's not that the you know, connective tissue network and it's like, okay, sure, but the result is still the same. So whether you call it a neurological change or a change in structure, the outcome is the same. And so it's not to say that the mechanism is unimportant. It's just to say that like, just because the mechanism is wrong doesn't mean that the observed outcome isn't
1: happening. Yeah. That is a hundred percent true. And it goes, yeah. I mean, if you look at a lot of these systematic reviews of um, of foam rolling and I, I know it was like, gosh, I'm trying to remember the exact name of the one that was really good. It's from like 2015, maybe it literally cited. It's like, here's the five or six different things that we think foam rolling actually does. Here's how we think. And that's a, tr- that's the mark of a true scientist is literally they say, we don't know for certain here's the proposed theories and we test these theories and we see what happens but at the end of the day as a practitioner as a coach as a physical therapist it's the proof is in the pudding you know what i'm saying it's can i actually test retest did i see an improvement there we go now in the same sense we can't hang our head on okay well i saw improved calf flexibility so i need to foam roll every single day every single day and i'm you know i'm never going to address why the calves are so tight but if it works for that person, and that's why we test and retest, because if someone does a banded joint mobilization and they don't see improvement from it, why are we doing banded joint mobilizations? It wasn't right for that person. You know, we need to find what is right for that person at that time with the end goal of improved movement quality
0: so i was hoping you could give people some guidelines to evaluate the effectiveness of uh, of the interventions that they're implementing so they can avoid just kind of randomly selecting treatments and hoping that something actually works
1: so i, I think that's where the testing comes in so let's say for example you have someone with a knee cave pretty simple problem um, what, what do we do for that person because it could be caused by a number of different things um, You could have someone that has knee cave because of an ankle mobility issue. you could have someone that has knee cave on one side because they're sort of hip shifting due to a hip mobility issue. It could be a foot problem. It could be a hip problem too, as far as stability control, you know, to the outside coach who doesn't really know too much about it. They go, Oh, knee cave, throw a, throw a hip circle on. That'll fix it. Right. Well, what are you doing? You're teaching the person, hopefully if you're doing it right, how to create external rotation torque, turn on the glutes and sort of maintain alignment, uh, by constant sort of co-contraction of those, those, uh, lateral hip muscles. But for that person, it may not be the issue. You know, I think that's where you sort of, you see the, the big movement issue, and then you have to break it down and sort of, uh, test the waters to see sort of what works best. And sometimes it's a, it's a little bit of trial and error sometimes to sort of see what corrective exercise is going to be best for the person. Uh, for example, I'm working with uh, a powerlifter right now, um, who has uh, a good amount of knee cave with her squats. And she would always say, you know, I'm trying so hard. And I get all these comments of people that are like, your squat sucks. Your knee cave is so bad. She's like, I, you don't think I know that? Like I'm trying, you know, I try to push my knees out. I try to put a band around my knees and it doesn't help. And the one thing we worked on actually was, uh, thinking about her feet. And, uh, thinking about the bar path and taking her time, actually, those were the two things I didn't tell her to focus on her knees because we tried, I was like, well, what type of things have you tried that did not work? And I was like, do you ever think about your feet? And she was like, no. And I was like, in your shoes, I want you to first warm up barefoot. And then, uh, as you squat, I just want you to think about feeling for the ground and feeling for actually what's happening at the foot and whether or not your foot's collapsing over, like, where's the pressure going? Because so often people that wear shoes almost lose the ability to sense position of the foot, and when the foot collapses over, the knee's going to come with it instantly. So I mean, anyone listening to this, stand up, collapse the arch of your foot over. What happens to the knee? It caves in as well. Now try to make an arch with your foot, and your knee's going to move out to the side a little bit. So there's a direct relationship with the position of your foot and the position of your knee. Well, because so many people wear shoes and they don't even ever squat without their shoes on. They never realize the position that their feet are in. And then we try to wear, uh, you know, shoes with arch support. Like that's going to help. Not at all. Because the arch support just starts your foot in a different position. It doesn't help you maintain an active stable foot. I remember I got a pair of Nike Romellos years ago and they came with like a competition insole that had a hard... <laughs> a hard, uh, arch support. And I was like, this thing is ridiculous. Like, why, why do we need to have a harder arch support with competition? No, you need to be able to strengthen your foot actively. And, and really this may be a surprise for most people that are listening. Those who wear arch supports actually develop weaker feet because your body starts relying on that arch support. So for example, we talked about the knee cave and for that person specifically focusing on the feet And then focusing on the bar path, because what would happen is that as she would hit a squat and her hips would rise, uh, too quicker, she would fall into this, uh, sort of stripper squat or good morning squat fault, uh, doing so is pulling her hips really back and out of great alignment to maintain the position of her knees. So really just telling her to take her time and really focus on that good bar path. Knee cave has already been improved immensely. And we're not giving sort of that classic exercise cue of drive the knees wide or use a band. So when it comes to just really any type of corrective exercise and whether or not it's going to have an impact on movement quality and performance, first things first, we got to screen. We got to see sort of where's the problem and try to sort of break it down. And then it's going to be a little bit of test and retest. And sometimes the longer you're in the game as a coach prescribing these things, it becomes a little bit easier to sort of see the invisible. Um, But for example, you you mentioned... um, you know, the, the single arm kettlebell upside down, whether you're doing a press or a walk or anything like that. Uh, I love using those because a they're getting the athlete to load single arm. Whereas often we're always in double arm or double leg support, unless you're doing like bicep curls, right? You're always grabbing the bar with two hands. So often we don't even realize that there's imbalances that develop in single arm stability. So one test that I like to use sometimes is I'll get an athlete in a prone position. So laying on their stomach on a bench with their arm out to the side, like a T and I'll just like push their, try to push their hand back down and see, can you support your arm up? Can you hold it up there? Technically, this is a manual muscle test of the, the mid trap and the rhomboids and the low trap muscles. And what we're looking for is a imbalances left first, right side, or B how hard it is for me to, to push it back down. And I get some athletes that have come to me and they're, they're strong benchers. There's three, four 500 pound benchers. Yet, when they're on their stomach with their arm out to the side, I can push their hand back down to the ground fairly easy. And it's because sometimes we develop these imbalances in these instabilities. We don't even realize it because we never put ourselves in those positions throughout our training, whether warm up or assistant exercises after, to where we're keeping those problems at fault. So, unless I would actually do a test like that, I would never realize, or that athlete would never realize, oh, wow, I've got a big imbalance to where the front side of my body is super engaged and primed and facilitated in the backside of my body, even though I'm a strong person, isn't as strong or as facilitated. So I developed this imbalance. And if that imbalance is allowed to continue growing bigger and bigger, I'm not saying it may set you up for an injury. It may not. Obviously, there's a lot that goes into those things. But what we do know is that you're not as optimal performance-wise, movement-wise, And by clearing up some of those issues with like an upside down kettlebell press or walk, we're going to improve the stability of that shoulder joint, that complex, being able to allow you to to have control of that shoulder joint and that complex to an even greater degree, which should then carry over to the bench. And like you mentioned, if you're doing these things correctly, when you start moving during that workout, you will notice it. So like you mentioned that athletes like, oh, I did those bottoms up presses, man. I felt like I just had complete control of my back, my shoulder blades. I felt like the bar was just grooving in a much better position. There you go. You're moving better. You're feeling it. Now that will turn over to improve performance eventually. In the same way, as, like, let's say someone's like, oh, my adductors are so tight. And then they're like, they foam roll their adductors and then they get back up and they go to squat again and they still feel tight. Well, you didn't fix anything. You didn't improve anything. That was a bad test that was a bad uh, exercise, throw it out. Let's find something else. So it's all got to be that test, retest and trial different things out. And I think the longer you're a coach, the more uh, cases that you see, the better you'll get at finding the right exercise. And, you know, before sometimes the athlete even knows, you know, your tests to go to, you know, the exercises you like, but there's always going to be cases that will puzzle you. That'll be like, ah, you know, usually I would go to this, but for this person, I don't think that's what they need. Let's try this. How do you feel it? Like? Oh, you like that one more. Okay, let's go. Let's go this, with this. Let's add that into your warm ups for the next couple of weeks. Let's see how that feels with your performance. So it's always, uh, always looking at the athlete like a puzzle, and we're trying to constantly find the right pieces to put in at the right time to create a more perfect picture. And as you'll know, being a coach for for longer than a few years, right? Things are constantly changing. That picture is never the exact same. A lifter two years in the game doesn't have the same issues as a lifter ten years in the game. And the longer you compete, the more things are constantly changing. Or you sort of tweak your right hammy, you know, during this deadlift. Okay, well, for the next couple of months, you may start developing different issues on the left side of the body because you started compensating a little bit. So we're constantly trying to hit this moving target and finding the right exercises to put in and then take out. And that's that's where the art of coaching comes in, there's this art and there's this science. And we know that these specific exercises do these things. And then the art of coaching is saying, I need to pick this and put it on at this time. Nope. I need to take this out. Let's put this as this intensity and let's constantly pick and choose and see, again, we're trying to create this masterpiece, which is the athlete moving as optimally as possible, moving this big weight as possible. And we're constantly in pursuit of perfecting this sculpture that is never complete.
0: Yeah. So I see it sort of like a spectrum. So we know elite athletes do develop functional asymmetries and functional being the key word that actually do help them perform better. Uh, But beyond that, we see differences even within the same subject to the degree of like retroversion and antiversion in the hips. So functional asymmetries can absolutely enhance sports performance, but they still kind of need to be kept within certain boundaries, if that makes sense. So, I mean, even also depending on where the athlete is in their prep, that may have, you know, a big impact on what they actually require. So I can think of one lifter in, in particular that I coach who's perfectly fine, uh, you know, during most of their training cycle, but their tolerance to heavy loading is not that great. And so they actually get a whole lot more banged up and require much more preparatory work during the peaking phase than they would otherwise need.
1: Yeah, um, you, you said two things there that I want to touch on. First, load can be an incredible teacher. As a coach, as a physical therapist, sometimes it's not until we really load someone that you see problems come out in capacity and ability to maintain technique. So you could do all the corrective exercises you want. People could look great. And then you start actually putting load on their body a couple of weeks later that you start to notice the breakdown even more. So that's an important thing. And then the the asymmetries, that's another big one, because I'll always get people that'll write things, be like, oh, well, people are are meant to be asymmetrical, blah, blah, blah. You know, we don't need to have all this symmetry. To a point, it, it, it's all dependent on context. If I'm seeing a baseball player, if he has symmetrical external rotations on his shoulders, he probably sucks as a baseball player. Like, you know, as a baseball player, you need a crap ton more external rotation on your throwing side than your non throwing side. If I get a baseball player that has 90 degrees of external rotation on his throwing side and his non throwing side, he probably cannot throw a baseball very fast. He probably needs to have 140 degrees of external rotation on his throwing side and 90 on the left side, you know, on the opposite side. Uh, A golfer needs to have asymmetrical hip internal rotation in order to create the, the torque at the hips and all the way up, you know, to swing the golf club. Asymmetries are normal in certain sports. They're sport specific adaptations, but to a point, strength sports are not asymmetrical sports. If you're doing a snatch and you have asymmetrical shoulder mobility, that's to a great degree, you're going to have a tough time lifting that bar because it's going to be moving lopsided. So we want to be able to minimize these asymmetries as much as possible or keep them at bay. Are they going to be there? Sure. I'm a baseball player of years and years and years who then decided to get into Olympic lifting. So I have my own small imbalances in asymmetries that I try to keep at bay. Are they going to get, like you mentioned, it's a spectrum. I don't want them to be on the greater end of things if I'm trying to do a bilateral strength movement because it's going to lead to improper movement or inefficient movement technique. If I have a ton of hip internal rotation on one side and very minimal on the other side, because I was a golfer my whole life and now I'm trying to squat really heavy, it's going to lead to problems in like hip shifting or that knee's going to be wanting to cave in every single time because my you know, hip can't move well. So it, it all comes down to context and understanding what type of athlete are you working with? Are you working with a field athlete who needs to be symmetrical or asymmetrical to a point? And this is one reason why I'm sure you're familiar with the whole uh, Mike Boyle versus a lot of strength and conditioning coaches. Mike Boyle's a very, for those out there who don't know who Mike Boyle is, he's one of the most famous uh, strength and conditioning coaches from like, you know, years and years past who You know, set the stage for a lot of strength conditioning coaches to do what they do today. Well, Mike Boyle is very well known for being a big advocate of unilateral loading, Bulgarian split squats, single leg squats, things like that, and not necessarily loading a bilateral squat that often. Now, you take that at face value. A lot of strength conditioning coaches who are big into powerlifting are like, that's ridiculous. You know, the bilateral back squats, one of the best things in the world. Well, you have to understand the context. Mike's working with a lot of hockey players. He's working with a lot of field and court athletes who by nature are very asymmetrical. So you're going to get more bang for your buck and not push someone into a potential issue, potentially mobility movement wise by loading them more single leg. Whereas like, yeah, as a power lifter, as a football player, you you need to have that double leg strength. You need to be as symmetrical as possible, limit those big asymmetries if you want to excel long-term. So again, it all comes down to context. And like you mentioned, the the spectrum of asymmetry and understanding that there's going to be some people on one end, and that's okay. That's a sport specific adaptation. But if we're talking about a strength athlete being a weightlifter, powerlifter, crossfitter, strongman, we want to try to keep those asymmetries at bay and not become too great, or else we may run into issues in loading the body in an inefficient manner, which can set, a, set us up just for performance problems or eventually a uh, potential injury. Yeah, no, that's
0: definitely a great point. And one of the things for myself anyways that I always look at first is technique because exactly like you mentioned with your, uh, I believe she was a female athlete, um, with, with the knee cave kind of movement strategy, you said focus on bar path and foot position, and then everything seemed to clear up. And so a lot of the times you can kind of pick these sort of low hanging fruit uh, corrections, and then they end up fixing a lot of the downstream negative impacts that you see. And so technique is definitely the first place that uh, I, I think is a really good place to start. Um, have you ever heard of uh, Megan
1: Jones Bryanton? Uh, I don't believe I know that name, though I'm really bad with names. <laughs> so,
0: so she, she studied uh, biomechanics. She published a lot of papers or a a handful of papers on uh, biomechanics and squats and uh, did some really, really interesting work on that anyways, and essentially identified a handful of like what she calls movement strategies. So uh, the knee collapse strategy, the hip shift strategy, the quad dominant strategy. And then uh, I can't remember the other one, but uh, at any rate, it it, it was really interesting because she was talking about um, uh, technique and sometimes one of the things that she said was that sometimes the technical fault or, or missing a lift isn't because you misgrooved. You misgrooved because you were insufficiently strong. And, mm-hmm. you know, I think that that's something that's not a lot of people really acknowledge. And I mean, just like you were saying, you know, someone who's squatting, I don't know how strong your, your athlete is, but let's say she's squatting, I don't know, three, 300, 350 pounds or something like that. Mm-hmm. The idea that her glutes are weak would be nonsense, you know? <laughs> So do, putting, putting a band around that isn't really going to do anything. And so it's like, okay, well, how do we strengthen her glutes? So that are more effective in that movement pattern. And I think that's a, a very different place to come from. And that can potentially impact your, your actual core training. Right. So like if her hips, hip extension strength is, is weak relative to her adductors or something like that, if that were the case, I know it's not necessarily mm. in this one, but. You know, doing something like some block pulls maybe, or some, I, I don't know, something that's going to really tax that portion of the lift could be, could be pretty beneficial with some really heavy box Mm -hmm. squats, wide stance or something like that. Um, And, and that ends up just kind of being part of the training. And so it ends up being a little bit more of like a top down approach for, uh, for, for prescriptions. And so, Mm -hmm. I don't know. I I just think it's interesting how you can tackle some of these things through a variety of different ways and how, I don't know who said it, but I think it might've been someone off of like the clinical athlete Um, off of their crew, but they were talking about how training is the training is the rehab. Mm, And, and, and I really like that because it's like, absolutely. You know, you increase tissue tolerance if you do it intelligently, like you were saying through, through some unilateral stuff or even like bilateral, but split, you know, split stance still bilateral, but, uh, you know, utilizing Bulgarian split squats or, or just a regular split squat can, can be pretty beneficial and take your joints through ranges that they probably wouldn't have, um, have access to just with a regular squat. Yeah. You know?
1: Yeah. I mean, so a couple of thoughts on that. Um, that's a common misconception when people will say, oh, well, you know, knee cave glutes are weak or glutes aren't turning on. That's a big glutes aren't turning on. So people will go, yeah. Well, if glutes yeah. were turning on. You'd fall over. Yes. Um, and this is a common thing where I think some people are just misquoted. For example, uh, Dr. Stuart Miguel, one of the foremost authorities on back pain, did a research article where they were doing uh, a hip procedure on patients, where they would actually um, basically expand the hip capsule and give a person who had a, a very, very damaged hip joint a little bit more, uh, a little bit more time before a total hip would be needed, and in doing so, it creates a ton of pain. So what they wanted to do was they tested the EMG of the glute max, glute medius in different movements like a, uh, a bridge and a couple different lower body movements, and then they performed this motion or performed this procedure, and then they, uh, which instantly put the person in a lot of pain, and then they retested a lot of those different things directly after, and what they found was that um, a lot of these uh, muscles had a change in their EMG pattern. So they had less what we would call neural drive. They weren't turning on at the right intensity in the right timing with all the other muscles as they were before when there was no pain. So he coined this gluteal amnesia. Now, some people will go, well, that just means, you know, that's ridiculous. The glutes aren't turned off. He's not saying they're turned off. What he was saying was that pain corrupts your body's ability sometimes to sequence certain muscles at the specific timing, the most optimal timing sequence. So when you go through a squat, your body doesn't say glutes turn on, okay, glute med, now quad turns on right? That would be very tough for your body to have to go through that same sequence every single time. So your body uses these motor programs and it's the stored sort of sequence within your brain of, okay, I'm going to squat. And then everything just sort of does as it should, because it's been sort of programmed that way. It's called motor memory, basically, as most people understand it and or muscle memory. Well, what that article was showing was that when you have pain, it corrupts that file within your brain. So all of a sudden the glute isn't firing to the right intensity or the right timing and control as it was when you weren't in pain. So when we have some problems and let's say someone's having back pain or hip pain, and then there, we see these movement problems afterwards. And, uh, what we're finding is that when we do specific, sometimes corrective exercises that help us re ingrain that motor pattern and that right movement, uh, engram is what he calls it, uh, the muscle memory, it allows the person to then re pattern their body in a way that's more optimal back to the original pain free motion. So sometimes it's as easy as, you know, just uh, putting a band around the knees and teaching them the proper sequencing of squatting again, sometimes it's not sometimes it's very specific, like, you know, bridges with a 10 second hold. And sometimes it may just be, you know, having them move into a more pain free position and slowing the tempo down. That's a big one that I learned from Eddie Cohen is that sometimes, you know, we just do a 10 second slow squat and become very aware of your foot positioning, your weight shift and things like that. And all of a sudden your body starts resetting and relearning where it's at, what it's defaulting into and where it needs to go. So that can be really helpful sometimes. But yeah, that the whole training is rehab. I love that idea. That was sort of the basis of uh, my first book, The Squat Bible was like, hey, if you're going about training when you're pain-free the correct way and you're moving optimally and you're, you know, you're fixing these common problems in technique and you're being proactive, not only in a technique standpoint, but then also not something I wrote about, but also from a programming standpoint, and you can put a lot of these injuries that cause you to go into rehab at bay because you're building a resilient, highly capacity uh body that's able to ward off a lot of the, the reasons why we develop pain. You know, a lot of these injuries that that happen when lifting, they come down to problems in technique and they come down to problems in load management. And obviously that's the the mix is where we finally find these injuries occur. And if you can be proactive in fixing these small movement issues before they come big problems, or making sure that your loading is a little bit more optimal you're not having every single person do, you know, the Russian squat program or, you know, anything like that. We're, we're actually programming to the individual in their injury history and in training history, you're going to have much better outcomes at keeping injuries at bay.
0: As far as, um, movement goes. I've I've been looking a little bit more. I haven't really written on it yet just because not quite confident enough to, to put something out in public anyways, but breathing has been a really interesting, um, subject that I've kind of been pursuing and even just the role of, of breathing and how that impacts your nervous system, your movement quality and different things like that. So do you utilize any sort of breath work in your, uh, rehab process or, prior to lifting is like maybe potentially priming someone or even as part of the cool down to kind of shift them from a sympathetic into a little bit more of a parasympathetic state after the training session.
1: I will say it's an area of my own uh, practice that I'm continuing to learn about every single day and become more uh, efficient with. I will say when it comes to the breath during rehab exercises, um, it can often come down to, especially if we're doing a stretch or a mobility drill, Allowing that person to take some slow, deep breaths and exhale fully and really decrease this stress and tension that we hold throughout our entire body. Oftentimes I'll give someone like a a lower body stretch and they may be just so stiff and tight because they expect it to hurt or they feel the tension come on. And it's not until you're like, all right, take five deep breaths. Don't count your seconds of your stretch, count your breaths. Deep breaths in and out. And all of a sudden, they like lose this tension throughout their entire body, sort of that parasympathetic taking over and allows their body to actually sink into a more efficient stretch than they ever were before. So, from a rehab standpoint, it can be really helpful. Uh, I'll give even a specific. During uh, a serratus wall slide, it's a foam rolling exercise that helps the serratus improve its ability to hug the shoulder blade close to the rib cage and decrease problems like scapular winging. Um, I believe it's Eric Cressy strength conditioning coach works more in the baseball world, had a great cue and it was, uh, as you're pushing the foam roller up the wall, it's, um, you're going to round your upper back. You're going to reach your arms to the wall. And then as you slide the, the arms up the wall, you're going to rotate your shoulder blades around. So it's the three R's. Well, one thing that he actually said in that, the end of the, the video that you can find on YouTube was he would have put exhale at the top of that, because when you do those three and then you lift that arm against the wall, and let all that breath out, what you actually do is you're gonna expand that or let that rib cage sort of relax and those, those shoulder blades are gonna get hugged a little bit tighter to the to the rib cage. So it can be a little bit helpful, more helpful at optimizing that specific movement. Now, when it comes down to um, performance, breathing is definitely something that I've gotten into a lot more uh, within the last couple of years of understanding diaphragmatic breathing. And how important that is specifically with the squat. And this is another thing that a lot of people miss when squatting and especially if they're wearing a belt, uh, but actually breathing into, uh, the core. And this is one that I actually, uh, got really into from watching Chris Duffin, uh, and speak on it and, you know, having the thumbs in the sides where the, uh, where the obliques are and just saying, I'm gonna breathe into my stomach. And if doing so, I'm gonna push those thumbs away. Uh, Chris has a really good video on, um, it's probably on the Kabuki education uh, you know, website on YouTube. Um, so that's just such a great cue and actually taking that and using that in every single type of lift you're doing. So if you're doing a deadlift in that bottom position, you are going to breathe into your stomach and expand laterally and then hold it and then start your lift. And, uh, what Dr. McGill always says is proximal stability enhances distal athleticism and power. So if you can harness the power of your breath and create that diaphragmatic, um, uh, you know, breathing pattern and then brace over the top, you're creating a ton of intra-abdominal cavity pressure, which is going to enhance core stability. And then if you brace over the top of it, it enhances it even more. So proper breathing can be a key aspect to performance. And if you, it all depends again on context. If you hear like a a boxer punch, right. They're not just holding their breath and then punching, but you get that, you know, that quick, uh, Bruce Lee has a great impression of it when he's, you can actually hear his breath when he's, you know, teaching someone how to punch the five inch or one inch punch, whatever it was called, you know, uh, so if you can harness the power of your breath, it can really, uh, be a key to unlocking even better performance.
0: Yeah. It's definitely been something that uh, the more that I read up on it, the more that I realize it's a really deep rabbit hole. So
1: <laughs> yeah, it really is. Those, those are the best rabbit holes to go down man. every single, yeah. everything I write on and everything I teach on, it's my own rabbit holes that I go down. And I'm like, you know, someone explains the the foot and how our foot needs to be spread out like a baby's foot and how, you know, toes are cramped in everyday shoes. And I'm like, oh, never really thought about like that. Oh, well, let's learn about what this person says. And then I go down that rabbit hole and then I'm in that rabbit hole for the next six months kind of thing. So yeah, breathing is a huge rabbit hole. Yeah. It's funny
0: actually. Cause so I, I obviously work for Kabuki. I develop a lot of like the written content for them and coach and stuff like that. And, um, yeah. I never really put that much thought into defeat, you know, and admittedly, I kind of thought that it was a little overrated, you know, I, like, I understood it. I was like, yeah, that makes sense. But I kind of think that people put a little bit too much emphasis in the feet and training the feet and this and this and that. And then I started working with them and just cause you know, Brandon and everyone at the team always just talks about it all the freaking time and almost inadvertently, I just kind of started paying more attention to it mm-hmm. and you really do notice a difference. It's, 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 it's honestly huge. wild. Like when you feel really rooted into the ground, cause I've, I've coached rooting and different things like that before, prior to, you know, really emphasizing that aspect. But it's funny how many different things you can, could just kind of fix downstream just by talking about, you know, Hey, like when you unrack the bar, like how many athletes unrack the bar and they're like, it's almost like they're holding it up, you know? Yeah. And it's just like, dude, let it sink in, let the weight sink from, you know, the bar, into your back, into your hips and into your feet, like feel really heavy in your feet. And then the rest of you is just one unit and it just moves together. And the yes. difference that that makes, like when you can do that is, is like incredible. You just it's feel so aware. strong. And
1: yeah, exactly. Man. When I first, so, I mean, as some people that are listening, know, uh, my background's in Olympic weightlifting and um, I, being an Olympic weightlifter was always in, weightlifting shoes. I mean, for you clean snatches, squats, everything you're in weightlifting shoes. I mean, rarely do you see an Olympic weightlifter do anything barefoot. And it wasn't until gosh, it's 2021 right now, maybe the fall of 2019 where I started experimenting with barefoot lifting or more so uh squat specifically. Um, I mean, I'd still wear my weightlifting shoes for snatches and cleans just because being a weightlifter, you don't know, do them barefoot. Um, but I would warm up sometimes barefoot for those, but I would squat exclusively barefoot or wear like the the Ursus shoes from from barefoot athletics. Um, And I can't tell you right now, if I were to try to put my weightlifting shoes on and squat, I would hate it. Just because I could completely feel the inability to root to the ground and feel every aspect of the squat like I can when I'm barefoot. And it takes a while. Like if you have not squatted barefoot ever, you know, putting on heavier load, it, it feels weird. It takes a lot of time. You don't feel right, but man, give it some time. It feels, I like, I feel so much more connected to the ground in my technique. I feel every aspect of the squat much more than I ever did. And I have been competing since 2005 in weightlifting and it's, uh, something that I'm waiting for one day there to be a wide toe box weightlifting shoe. So at least I can feel more comfortable with weightlifting shoes. Cause they just pinch your toes together like crazy. But, um, yeah, I think barefoot lifting. And again, I have to thank Chris Duffin for that. I mean, I had Chris on my podcast and he was talking about how people would always comment on his post of him squatting, you know, ungodly amounts of weight and saw him do it barefoot. And they'd be like, Oh my gosh, that's so crazy. And he's like, you don't understand like lifting barefoot is a performance enhancer when you learn to do it correctly. Like you feel every aspect of the ground in your foot, like you can feel when your foot is moving improperly and you can make those adjustments in real time much more. And when you're rooted to the ground, like a tree just spreading out everything else up the rest of the way is gonna be that much better. So like that lifter I was talking about before is that sometimes, you know, we take a downstream or an upstream approach it's really what, what's best for the person. The results speak for themselves. And sometimes it's a bottom-up approach. Sometimes it's a top-down approach. And I think the mark of a true coach is using different uh, methods that help the, you know, the end product come out the best as possible. So I think the mark of a true coach isn't using the exact same sequence every single time. Uh, it's, it's using the right sequence for the right person. And for a lot of people, man, understanding the power of barefoot squatting or barefoot lifting and enhancing that rooting ability. It goes so far for clearing up a lot of problems up the stream.
0: Yeah. It's, it's still something that I kind of play around with, especially in my, my preparatory work. Like I like to do hip airplanes for sure. Just kind of with a barefoot Cause I find that makes a pretty big difference for me. And then even just like, mm-hmm. I don't know, different, different like single leg hip drills and whatever. Um, one thing that I wanted to talk about was I know sometimes people, let's say like you're doing a 90-90 um, you know, hip internal external rotation drill, and some people might feel like they have kind of an impingement on the outside of their of their hip or, or somewhere, right? Mm-hmm. But they don't necessarily feel any stretch. So it's not like they're pushing too far and then they're getting impinged. It's they're just getting impinged and there's zero stretch, zero uh anything like that, right? So I know a lot of the times people sometimes will try and push through that because if they do, then they start getting a stretch. It's unlikely that's going to be really productive, but um, I just kind of wanted to get you to essentially talk about that and maybe what other solutions you might have for those individuals, why that might or may not be the best approach and, and things like that.
1: So it's hard to say with 100% certainty for each individual, but I will say there are some drills and I think the 90, 90 hip rotations is a good example of them that just aren't right for some people based on their anatomy. Like I get some people that just have a lot of retroversion or a lot of antiversion. And there's certain positions that, they just can't move into very well. It's not the most efficient stretch or mobility drill for their body. And they don't feel the stretch. They just feel blocked. And it's not something that it's like, oh, well, you feel blocked. Like, let's do some band and joint mobilization. It's like, this just doesn't feel good. I don't like this. And uh, I think that's, again, where it comes down to the coach of understanding, like, hey, is this the right stretch for this person? Is it something that maybe they're, they just need some cueing on? Or is it really the you know, most optimal way of moving for that person? Um, in the same way that like, you know, we say that a lot of people should be able to squat hundred percent toes forward. Well, for a majority of people, sure. But there's some people that you squat hundred percent straight forward. You're going to be smashing your femur into the end of the hip socket and just impinging upon yourself. And no amount of banded joint mobilizations is going to help you squat with a more, or hundred percent straight forward foot. You're just going to feel that hard end block. And it's not until you squat with your toes a little bit wider, your toes turned out that you're actually going to have that more freedom of movement. So In my experience with certain drills, people will feel just like hard blocks, not for the sake of it being something that they need a mobility drill for, but it's just not right for their body. And there may be more efficient ways to go about it to improve their end motion. Yeah, no, for sure that makes sense that uh, the morphological kind of
0: changes or not changes, sorry, but morphological differences between individuals that have little bit more of a, a say in what is and is not going to be appropriate for them. Um, yeah. Can you just talk a little bit about uh, reactive neuromuscular training and, and how you might implement that in training, especially for things like let's say uh, a
1: hip shift or some rotation or something like that in the squat? Or yeah, so uh, RNT or reactive neuromuscular training is basically a way of performing a corrective exercise to where we're trying to enhance the body's awareness. So subconscious awareness of its positioning. So um, for example, if I have an athlete doing a single leg squat and their knee caves in every single time, well, a cue consciously would be drive your knee out. Don't let your knee cave in. Well, sometimes that doesn't work for the person. It just, their knee just keeps on caving in. Well, we can do a drill and there's no like right or wrong. It basically, there's many different ways to do this, but usually it's performed with an elastic band, like a TheraBand or a, a very small band that you may monster band. And i would put it around the person's knee and I'm not going to cue them. I'm just going to tell them to do the squat and stay balanced. And I'm going to just pull in on the knee a little bit. Some people will call it feed the dysfunction. Basically, I want to try to pull the body into the bad position that they're defaulting it to. And in doing so, the body has to learn. It has to react to maintain the more optimal positioning. So the body, by me pulling the knee in, and then they're doing this thing like squat. I'm not telling them, keep your knee out, right? Subconsciously, their body's like, oh, you know, these lateral hip muscles need to kick on the foot needs to be more stable in order for the knee to remain straight up and down those, uh, different parts of the body have to react and change their role in order to have more ideal or optimal aligned movement. So, um, you can do this for a number of different things, but like knee cave would be, uh, pulling the knee in towards the midline of the body that could be in a double leg stance. So technically like using a hip circle is technically RNT. Um, a single leg stance would be trying to pull the knee across the body. Um, you could do it in a split squat, uh, a hip shift. Some people will then sort of, uh, pull the body towards the hip shift, So if someone is shifting to the right, they will pull them towards the right even more to let the person feel for the first time subconsciously that they are shifting to the right side, and then they will react and have a little bit more aligned position. So there's a number of different ways people will use RNT, but the entire goal is to teach the body how to feel for the problem even occurring, and then react accordingly to create the opposite, but more optimal movement pattern. So, uh, a very helpful tool in, uh, rehab and in correcting technique errors, uh, but sort of understanding that the body just isn't this straightforward, um, uh, this muscle does this it's, it's based off this entire sensory pattern and all these muscles are interconnected and there's the neuromuscular system, uh, is, is very complex. And sometimes it's not as simple as you know, get this muscle stronger and everything fixes itself. Often it's not. And a lot of times it has to come down to, to feeling for the problem occurring in the first place so that the body can become more aware to, you know, fix the problem.
0: I guess one of the last things that, that I wanted you to touch on was yeah. um, we kind of, well, you kind of alluded to this earlier, right? Uh, everything kind of being bilateral with power lifters and, you know, strength athletes in general for, for, weightlifting and powerlifting um, is kind of moving outside of those traditional patterns into doing maybe some rotational work or anti-rotational work, anti-flexion extension work um, and and things like that, just to kind of potentially, you know, either build up tissue tolerance if you get out of position or just even stay healthy. Like I know for myself anyways, um, the more specific your training is, if you do have something that's a little bit of an issue, it's just going to kind of reinforce that along with anything else or everything else. And so, you know, ha- having something that allows you to move in different planes, maybe at different angles, things like that, e- even from a standpoint of like just quadriceps tendonitis, you know, doing like a freaking a leg extension or like a sissy squat or something like that, that you wouldn't normally do mm-hmm. uh, can, can be fairly beneficial. But I just wanted you to touch on that and, how you incorporate things like that and why you like to incorporate things like
1: that, uh, if at all, into your programming for athletes. I, I love things like that. Um, basically the idea is that we have the sport specific movements. So we'll say weightlifting, you got your, your snatch, your clean, your different squats. Uh, powerlifting, bench squat, deadlift, right? And then on top of that, as we're trying to improve our capacity within those movements, We're also using assistant exercises to maintain resiliency. And what that does is I love getting ourselves out of the specific roles that we're in. So for bench press, we're always doing a double arm bench press, whether it's incline, decline, flat bench, maybe you're doing different varieties where you're doing some board pressing, but you're always pressing, right? We're always in this one specific uh, uh, motion of double arm. Well, you mentioned, what about like a kettlebell press? Or what about a standing kettlebell press where we're pressing vertically with one arm and that kettlebell is upside down? You know, I love being able to add variety to training because it's going to put stresses on your body that aren't this norm. And then your body has to learn to adapt to become more resilient. And basically, if you want to think about it like fixing weak links, and you can be, you know, have all the greatest technique with your regular double leg, double arm supportive movements. But if we're not adding in some variety in our training that adds a different type of stimulus, I think sometimes we just have these small weak links uh, that can sometimes become bigger issues and create, you know, they're small holes and we want to plug them up before they become bigger holes. And uh, I think uh, adding variety every so many weeks, changing them up and adding in new things um, can be extremely helpful. And I love the variety. It adds it adds a little bit more flavor to, to training as well. Cause sometimes it can become monotonous to being like, all right, well, today's squat day, today's bench day, today's deadlift day. All right, well, let's add in some variety. Well, it's like, all right, well, it's, we're doing some deadlifts, but then, oh, afterwards we're doing two sets of 10 single leg RDLs. And then I'm going to pull a sled for, you know, 400 meters, or I'm going to be doing uh, snatch grip, bottom presses, snatch presses. And then, oh, I'm going to do single arm dumbbell. Or uh, presses, or two sets of five Turkish get-ups. You know things that are anti-flexion, anti-extension, single arm loading, single leg loading. I love it. There's so much variety that we can add out there, and I would I would uh, recommend that every single coach uh, change things up and add it in as assistant exercises a few times a week. You have your main work that you need to get done for your competition. Let's add in some variety. And it's going to change. There's no right or wrong. Uh, I think the more you change things up and add in variation, the better it can be for the athlete. And the fun thing is they can also be teaching tools. For example, I love Turkish get-ups. Kettlebell get-ups are amazing. And you can do all the different double leg, uh, double arm movements, specifically bench, snatch, jerks, stuff like that. But you do a heavy kettlebell get-up, And all of a sudden you're like, oh crap, like I can do it. I did the other day, I did a 97 pound kettlebell get up on my right side. I could barely do an 85 pound get up on my left side. That's a pretty big asymmetry side to side. I've got some work to do. So now I know, okay, I need to be working on some kettlebell get ups and improving the stability of my shoulder through full ranges of motion. So things like that can be learning assessments too, because they can expose these asymmetries that often go unnoticed and allow us to then have some fun for the next couple of weeks. Let's do some get ups twice a week. That's it. You know, if they can improve, decrease those, you know, plug those small holes become big, before they come big holes and improve our resiliency overall.
0: Awesome. So we're coming up on that uh, hour mark and I want to be respectful of your time. It's, uh, it's been awesome having you here, but before we let you go, I
1: just wanted to know where can people find you? Man, social media, just Squat University, whether that's Instagram, YouTube, uh, Twitter, TikTok, Facebook squat university.com anywhere. Just type in squat university on the platform you're on. And I'm probably on it.
0: Awesome, man. So all that stuff's going to be linked up in the show notes, guys. Definitely go make sure you check him out. He puts out a ton of great content on the regular. Um, it's actually kind of surprising how much content you put out <laughs> considering the, the quality of it as well, actually, which is, which is really awesome, especially the videos. Um, yeah, man, it's been awesome to have you here, dude.
1: Hey, thank you so much uh, for having me on. I really appreciate it. Uh, It was an honor to talk to you. So again, thank you so much, man.